New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. As you know, the theme of New Horizon this year is people of peace. And in our morning Bible sessions, we want to see that great biblical theme of peace or shalom in all its rich depth of meaning in the Bible story as a whole. But what do we mean by the Bible story as a whole? Well, it's important to remind ourselves that the Bible is not just a book full of rules or promises or doctrines, though of course there are plenty of all of those in the Bible, but taken as a whole canon in the form that God has given it to us from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is somewhat like a great drama, an action-packed play with many characters and scenes and acts, but with God himself, of course, as the author and director of the drama and the principal character within it. In some ways, it's like a drama with seven acts, and here they are in a kind of diagram form. First of all, of course, is act one, God's creation. God created the heavens and the earth and put humanity in the earth to live there with God. But then act two, it all goes wrong in our sinful fall and rebellion against God, which brings so much sin and evil into the world. And then Act 3 begins with God's promise to Abraham and the people of Old Testament Israel who are told that through them God intends to bring blessing to all the nations on the earth. And that forward-looking promise of the Old Testament leads eventually to Act 4, uh, which is the central act, of course. It's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his life and teaching and death and resurrection and ascension at the very heart of the Bible story. But that then leads on, of course, to Act 5, the day of Pentecost and the launch of the mission of the church in the New Testament, going right on up until the return of Christ, when we reach Acts 6 and 7, the final judgment and the new creation that we read about in Revelation. So the question is then, what does shalom look like in each of these great acts of the biblical drama? But we've only got five sessions so we'll consider Acts 1 and 2 together today, and then Acts 6 and 7 together later in the week. So today, then, we go back to the very beginning to see how Shalom was established in creation and then shattered by our rebellion, Acts 1 and 2. Now, that would take us back, of course, to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the creation account, and then Genesis 3 to 11, the story of our human rebellion and fall and the growth and spread, the escalation of sin and evil throughout all the earth and all history. But I'd like to take you somewhere just a bit less familiar. And that is to a chapter where we find a strongly creational understanding of shalom. And it's a beautiful picture of what it could mean to enjoy it alongside a pretty horrible picture of what it means to lose it. And that's to Leviticus chapter 26. Because here we find God promising to Israel that if they would live within his covenant and obey his commands as their Redeemer, God, and Lord, then they could enjoy a range and a quality of blessings that would amount in many ways to a restoration of the shalom of creation itself. I will grant peace, shalom, in the land, says God. But if they persist in rebellion and sin, then they would suffer greatly. And that, indeed, as we all know, is what actually happened. 
But let's look at the positive side first of all. Here we are then in the book of Leviticus with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. They have experienced God's compassion and grace and redeeming power when he rescued them from slavery in the Exodus in that great act of redemption. And they have responded to that by promising to hear and to obey his word. And now they're in a covenant relationship with their God. And more than that, they've experienced God's incredible forgiveness even after their terrible rebellion at the golden calf in Exodus chapters 32 to 34. And now, by the end of the book of Exodus, God is dwelling in their midst, in the tabernacle, that is, the portable tent that was God's presence in their midst as they travel on. But the big question now is, can this happy state of affairs, this shalom, as we might call it at the end of the book of Exodus, can this continue when they get into the land that God has promised them? And yes, says God, it can, but only if you continue to live in obedience to me and in the ways that I set before you. And so that brings us then to Leviticus chapter 26. Now, at this point, I'm sorry to say, I do have to object just a little bit to the heading that's inserted into our NIV. Can you see it there? It says reward for obedience. And then just a little bit later, punishment for disobedience. Now, that seems to suggest that God's blessing could be some kind of a reward, as if Israel could earn God's blessing by their obedience. But that's not what's happening at all. I mean, yes, of course, we know that sin and rebellion deserve God's punishment and justice, as he makes very clear in the whole Bible. But no, obedience never deserves God's blessing. On the contrary, it's a response to God's grace. In Israel's case, that blessing and grace of God's salvation in the Exodus deliverance, God's grace came first, and obedience follows as the only proper response. So obedience to God's law for Israel then was not a way of earning or deserving God's blessing as some kind of reward. No, obedience was simply the only way that they could remain within the sphere of blessing that God had already granted to them by his grace and by his salvation. So if Israel wanted to go on enjoying that blessing of God's promises and the covenant and his salvation, then they must live accordingly. God's blessing is not a reward for obedience, but the reason for it. But now then, what would that blessing look like if Israel responded to their savior God by living in obedience to him as his redeemed people? Well, that's what Leviticus 26 verses 1 to 13 sketches in. And you'll find these same promises in the first part of Deuteronomy chapter 28, when God renewed his covenant with Israel just before they entered the promised land. And when you read these verses, it's all very creational, very earthy, very practical. That's to say, God doesn't say to Israel, look guys, if you obey my commandments, then you can all come up to heaven when you die. No, God is the creator of heaven and earth. Remember that little creation triangle in Act 1 of the drama of Scripture? God put human beings in the earth to live, to flourish here in a relationship of shalom in all directions. That is peace between people and God, peace between people and one another, and peace between people and the created order that we are part of. 
And in that rich multi-dimensional shalom of God's creation intention, that's what's reflected here in Leviticus chapter 26. Even, even with the awareness that we live in a fallen world because of act two of the Bible story in which there are evil people and dangerous enemies and wild beasts. So let's think then about the ingredients of shalom that we see here in these verses. And the first point is this, that shalom means knowing the living God. And you see there in chapter 26, verse one, that God warns Israel not to worship other gods or to set up idols. Well, why not? Well, because you see, they now know who the one true living God is. And that is that he is Yahweh, the God who had revealed his name to Moses at the burning bush and then shown his power through the Exodus. And so again and again in the book of Leviticus, God simply says, I am the Lord your God. And by the way, I hope that you know that when our English Bibles put that word, the Lord, in capital letters, it is translating the personal name of God in the Old Testament. That is Yahweh, as it's sometimes written nowadays, or Jehovah in the older versions. The Lord, God of Israel, that's his personal name. And can you see it there in verse, well, actually the last verse of chapter 25, verse 55, and then here in this chapter, verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 13. Again and again, God just keeps insisting, look, this is who I am, and you know it. You know the living God by name. And that indeed, you see, was probably the greatest privilege that Israel had among all the nations of the world at that time that they knew the name, the identity of the living God, the true God, the only God, in a way that no other nation did at that time in Old Testament times. Look for a moment at what God said to the Israelites even before he rescued them from Egypt. This is back in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, where, where God says to the Israelites, this is what you to say to them, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and a mighty act of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. And then, then you will know that I am Yahweh, the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Then you will know who I am, says God. And later on, after it all happened, Here's how God uh, underlines that uniqueness of Israel's experience. This is in Deuteronomy chapter, 30, uh, chapter 4. Deuteronomy, of course, just before the Israelites go into the promised land. And again, God asked this question and said, Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? That, of course, is referring to Mount Sinai. Has any other God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testing signs, wonders, mighty hand, outstretched arm, great, awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? That's the Exodus, of course. And then verse 35, you, you of all the nations, you were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord Yahweh is God and beside him there is no other. Or in verse 39, making it even more emphatic, so acknowledge then and take to heart this day that the Lord Yahweh is God in heaven above and on the earth below, and there is no other. So you see, the point here is that Israel had experienced God's revelation 
at Mount Sinai and God's redemption in the Exodus in ways that no other nation on earth had done at that time. So they knew the living God in ways that no other nation did. And that should have brought them great joy and great peace for many of them. Of course, it did. You, you read in the book of Psalms, and it's exactly what they celebrate many times. For example, if you read Psalm 33 sometime, the psalmist there celebrates wonderful things about God, his truth, his righteousness, his love, that he's the creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas. He's the Lord of history. He's the governor of all the nations. He's this great God, Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. And then the psalmist says in verse 10, verse 12, how blessed, how blessed is the nation whose God is this one, the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. And you see, as it was for Israel, so it is for us, indeed now for anyone, that the only way to real shalom, to having peace in the midst of this fallen world, is to know the living God, the creator of this world and the savior of the world. Because for us, of course, that means to know him in and through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect, the final revelation of God. So that's why, you see, that's why God warned Israel here in verse 1 and again and again to avoid the way of idolatry, of going after other gods, false gods, gods that we've made ourselves. For when we make false gods, that's what shatters our shalom and inflicts every kind of brokenness and strife upon us. And isn't that just what the Apostle Paul sees so clearly in Romans chapter 1? That he says that as a whole human race, we have substituted, we have exchanged the knowledge of the living God for every possible kind of idolatry. And just look at the mess we end up in, he says at the end of the chapter. A mess that is both personal and social and spiritual in relation to God. So that's the first thing. Shalom means knowing the living God. Secondly, shalom means rest in the midst of work. See it there in verse two, observe my Sabbaths, says God. Now that might seem a bit strange to us, or perhaps sadly, even a bit legalistic, you know, all this Sabbath thing. Let's remember, let's start where we should start. That is that work, work is a good thing. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. That is the God that we meet in Genesis one, that we see God as a worker. He decides, he plans, he organizes and executes and accomplishes, and then he's satisfied with what he's done with his work, and he rests. Not rests, of course, in the sense that God gets a bit tired and needs to take a break, but no, in the sense of enjoying his own handiwork and exercising his kingly rule within his ordered creation. And human beings then, being made in the image of God, are to do the same. That is to work and rest within their enjoyment of God's creation. And that's why the Sabbath commandment within the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus makes the day of resting from work a day of remembering the creator. See, human life includes our work, but it's not to be defined and limited by our work, but by our relationship with God, who is our creator. And so God gave to the Israelites the Sabbath day, breaking up time itself, we might say, into weeks 
with a rhythm of work and rest. You see, back in Egypt, the Israelites had no freedom to rest or to take a day off. Their work was all for the benefit of Pharaoh, and they probably never had a break. So when God rescues them out of Egypt and out of slavery, the Sabbath was one of God's most amazing gifts to his people, and indeed through Israel to the world. But God gave them more than just one day a week, one day in seven. That rhythm of sevens extends also to the years. Because do you notice the context here of Leviticus 26? The previous chapter, chapter 25, has been dealing with the whole world of work, the economy, and the impact of impoverishment and debt. Because sometimes people can become so poor that their working possibility, their work, is the only thing they can sell in order to survive. And so it becomes enslaving. And God recognizes this fact of economic life in a fallen world. And for all sorts of reasons, sometimes natural causes, sometimes human wickedness, greed and oppression, for all sorts of reasons, Paul, people can fall into debt. And debt can be crushing and enslaving. And God knew that. So God gave to Israel an economic system that involved periods of debt relief and a way of ensuring that families did not end up in slavery forever. And that was the sabbatical year, every seventh year, and the jubilee year, every seven sevens, and then in the 50th year. Now, we can't go into all those details right here and now, although they're actually quite fascinating. But the point I'm making is this, that this whole Sabbath principle in Israel was a check on the idolatry of work. As I said, work is a good thing, but it easily becomes a God thing. And anything that becomes an idol like that can then take over our lives and ruin all the other good things, like our marriage or our family and even the joy of life itself. Here's how that astute social commentator in the book of Ecclesiastes observed it. This is in Ecclesiastes chapter four. And the, the writer says this, that again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. And yet there was no end to his toil, his work. But his eyes were never content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. Why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business, says Ecclesiastes. And so God says, don't let that happen. Balance work with rest and remember your creator and your redeemer. Every week, he says, there is to be a day of shalom, of rest and peace for the whole community, including even working animals. And then every seventh year, a year of rest for the whole land and release for those who are enslaved by debt. And this Sabbath principle, you know, should still be there for us, even in this New Testament era of our lives and our lives in Christ. That however we work it out, shalom ought to involve what in a secular world they call a good work-life balance. A life in which work is important, of course it is and should be, but is not the be-all and end-all of life itself. A life in which we take time to rest to remember the Lord, to refocus on God's purpose for our lives. All of that, yes. But shalom, of course, also means peace that comes from resting in Christ for eternity. Not 
RIP, uh, rest in peace. But what Hebrews 4 is talking about, you remember how the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 4 points out that the Sabbath in the Old Testament was a kind of signpost to an even greater and better rest that can be ours in Christ, both now in freedom from anxiety and panic as we obey Christ and trust our Heavenly Father, and of course in eternity when we will enjoy the perfect shalom of the new creation. So that brings us to our third point, which is that shalom means freedom from hunger and fear. Look carefully at verses 4 to 10, and, and let me read them to us just to remind us of them. Here's what God says in chapter 26, verses 4 to 10. God says, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue to the grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue to the planting, and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. See, those verses take us back to creation, back in, in a sense to the Garden of Eden, I suppose, except for the enemies, the sword and the battles of verses seven and eight. We still live in a fallen world. We know that. Verse 6 actually uses our word. God says, I will grant shalom in the land. Literally what God says here is, I will give peace on earth. And that's the very resonant phrase here, isn't it, that echoes right on down through scriptures, even into the song of the angels at the birth of Christ. And God's idea of shalom here in the land includes the rich creational blessings of the soil just as he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. You will eat all the food you want and live in safety. I love the way Tim Chester in his book, A Meal with Jesus, says that God's first gift to humanity was a menu. You may eat of any of the trees of the garden that you want, except this one, of course. Now, that eating and enjoying food was not without work, of course, as we saw in our last point. And so our text speaks of planting and sowing and harvesting and so on, all the natural necessary work of agriculture. And shalom includes all of that under God's blessing. And God says, I will make you fruitful and increase your numbers, which again is a promise that echoes God's original instruction to the human race to be fruitful and multiply. So shalom then, in God's view, includes the normal processes of sex, and births, and children, and families. And then God says that shalom will mean freedom from fear, the fear of violent death, whether by wild beasts or vicious enemies. And that when we live in such circumstances, that is freedom from those things, then that is God's blessing, and we should be grateful for it, those of us who do. Now, however, of course, we know and so did the Israelites, that we live in a fallen world in which there are all kinds of brokenness and failure. Crops fail. People die young. Wild animals kill human beings. Accidents happen. Robbers kill. Wars break out. So what then is shalom in such a world? 
Well, I think it means, first of all, being thankful when we do enjoy the blessings of food and security. And it also means that we trust in God even when we don't. You remember the book of Habakkuk and how that book ends? He ends in great fear and trembling because he can see an enemy approaching and he knows that there's going to be suffering and death. But even in that fear and in that need, he is able to put his faith in God and even to rejoice in God because the righteous person will live by faith, he says. Or you take a psalm like Psalm 34, which balances thankfulness for God's protection and deliverance from evil and from enemies, but also recognizes that the righteous may indeed and often do suffer from all kinds of bad things. So the psalmist's strong faith that God will ultimately deliver the righteous and destroy the wicked seems to become a, a firm hope for the ultimate future. The psalm ends by saying that evil will slay the wicked, the foes of the righteous will be condemned, but the Lord will rescue his servants, and no one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. And I think that was indeed how Israel envisaged that future of perfect shalom. Not some kind of fairy tale heaven in a purely spiritual realm, but the perfection of all that God intended for us at creation itself. And you see some of those pictures in the great vision of the messianic era in, for example, Isaiah chapter 11, or Isaiah 32, or Isaiah 65. And that brings me then to the fourth point, that shalom means God in our midst, God with us. The climax of God's promise of blessing for his obedient people comes in verses 11 and 12 of this passage, when God says, look, I will put my dwelling place among you and will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. You see, it was not, not enough merely for Israel to know God, as we were thinking in our very first point, to know that there is only one true living God and that Yahweh is his name and his character is one of compassion and justice. I mean, that in itself, just to know God, is a vast privilege, as we've already seen. But what God wants even more than that is for his people to be his dwelling place on earth. God wants to come down and stay. God makes himself at home in the midst of his people. That is shalom. God with us, Emmanuel, which is what it means. And this takes us back once again to the book of Exodus and to that tabernacle. In fact, the word here, my dwelling place, is the same as the word for my tabernacle. For that was the focal point of God's presence right there in the heart of his people, literally in the middle of their camp. God goes camping with his people. He's living with them in the midst of them. And God had told Israel, you know, that's what I really, really want. That's why I brought you out of Egypt. God tells them it, it wasn't just for liberation to bring you out of slavery, although, of course, it was. It wasn't just so that you would receive my covenant and my law, although, of course, it was. But, says God, so that I might dwell in your midst, as God had wanted to do ever since the Garden of Eden. Look for a moment at what God says in Exodus chapter 29 in the midst of talking about the tabernacle. Here's what God says 
He says, I, then I will consecrate the tent of meeting. That's what we're talking about here and the altar and consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. And then says God, I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. And they will know, there's that phrase again, they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that, so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God says, that's why I brought you here. Is because I want to live in your midst, to dwell with you. And this too is a kind of restoration of Eden. Because did you notice what God says in verse 12? I tried to, I tried to emphasize it. God says, I will walk among you. Now, this is actually a very unusual form of the normal verb to walk. It, it's, it's, it's got a kind of self-reflexive meaning, this form of the verb. It's something you're doing for yourself. It's not like when you go walking purposefully from one place to another, to a destination. Now, this is the kind of walking you do just, just for pleasure, just going for a walk, going for a stroll with somebody else, if you like, going for a, a nice time of companionship, of just walking and chatting together, just out together for a walk. And that's the form of the verb here. And the only other place where that form of the verb is actually found is precisely in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we read that God used to go walking with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the evening. Same verb as here. God and human beings just strolling together in harmony, enjoying the end of the day's work, relaxing together. That is shalom. Well, sadly, of course, we know that Genesis 3, that day, ended with the exposure of sin and disobedience and expulsion from the garden. But what God is saying here is, Lord, he's saying, guys, I long for that again. I want to have that kind of relationship with my people. I want to be able to walk among you as my family in peaceful, easy friendship and love and shalom. Now, for Israel in the Old Testament, of course, that meant having the tabernacle later on the temple as the sacred holy space, as it were, in their midst, where they could only walk with God, as it were, through the ministry of their priests and those sacrifices of atonement and cleansing. God in his holiness couldn't just jog in and out, as it were, among his people in their sin, but God longed for that restored relationship, that shalom to be walking with his people, dwelling with them. And what about us? Well, of course, this points us, doesn't it, to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. First of all, in his incarnation, when the word became flesh, as John said, and tabernacled among us, Jesus became that tabernacle, that temple, that place where heaven and earth meet, the very presence of God on earth. That's even how Jesus described his own body in his death and resurrection as the building of a new temple, that Jesus becomes the way that we can meet with God and have God among us. As Paul also puts it, that we ourselves, through our union with Christ, have become the dwelling place of God in that incredible passage in Ephesians 2 that we will look at on Wednesday. But of course, we still live in this world of sin and wickedness, where there is no justice, no peace. But this promise, you see, this promise of God in Leviticus 26, once again, points us to an ultimate future when it will be truly and abundantly fulfilled in the new creation. Because here is God himself speaking from his throne. You remember 
in the very end of our Bible story, in Revelation chapter 21, when the whole creation has been transformed into the city of God, into the, the temple of his dwelling place with us forever. And John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. But that's the end of the story, isn't it? That's the last great act of the drama. And we'll get there. We'll get there on Friday in Acts 6 and 7. But what then is shalom for us now? in the light of Acts 1 and 2 of the great Bible story, the creation and the fall. Well, of course, there are many things probably that we could include here, but from this one passage that we've looked at, it certainly includes knowing the living God, knowing that God made us for rest as well as for work, being free from hunger and fear and rejoicing in that, or being able to trust in God when such things hit us in this fallen world. And above all, knowing the daily, loving, living presence of God in our hearts and in our midst. So through Christ, then, these promises of Leviticus 26 can be true for us, but in ways that need to be worked out in our daily lives. And may God give us grace and wisdom to know how to do that for his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.